Back many, many years ago, when I was kind of er in my early 20s, late teens, there was a movie that was pretty famous. It's not famous now, thankfully, because it was insanely stupid. The movie I'm talking about is Jerry Maguire, and you know, most people would say that because it's a chick flick, that the reason I don't like it is because I'm a confirmed bachelor, and bachelors tend to hate chick flicks. No, no, it's because there is one line in this movie that I think encapsulates the totality of our culture's misunderstanding of love. And this misunderstanding of love, it would be okay if it was just a cultural thing, but it is something that affects the way we read the Word of God, the way we interpret God, and the way we act with one another. And the phrase is this, you complete me. Now, you laugh because, you know, that really is honestly not a great way to talk about love. But just think about it for a second, about why we, at least for a few years after that movie, because I kept hearing people use that line on each other after that film, got so famous that it got misused in later films, like The Dark Knight, the Joker says to Batman, I don't want to kill you, you complete me. Again, to, to kind of joke about the idea of what this means. You see, the problem that we have here is that we as a people, we as a culture, we love the idea of love, but our concept of love is this weird thing where we imagine other people have to fulfill us. And if they fulfill us, then they're worthy people to love. And let me throw this out here for, to you right now. That's insane. That's something that a, a character like the Joker should be saying because that's so fundamentally, unconscionably wrong that it's going to be damaging to us if we keep believing it. And it gets worse too because, uh, okay, again, you guys are just, you're my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ. You're, you're safe to open this stuff up to. I remember when I was much younger, uh, and you know, younger men tend to have hormones running, in, running through their bodies, and they imagine all sorts of things about the young ladies that they had been hitherto ignoring because you know, they didn't really recognize the value of the opposite sex, and you know, when you get to a certain age, you start to think that you do. I can remember all of the times that I would have a crush on someone, and I honestly believed in the depth of my being I was in love with her. I honestly believed it. And, but the way I believed it is that I would actually want her to sit around mooning about me. As if that was somehow the apex of what her life should be, mooning about uh, a hormonal teenage boy. I imagined that that was what it was to be loving. And, when, and there were two ways that this played out because, you know, uh, like most teenage boys, I had this experience with, well, lots of people, uh, with lots of women I would have a crush on uh, serially over long periods of time. Either she would start to feel, the, feel that way, she would start to actually, you know, fulfill me and stuff, and, th and then I would suddenly get bored with her and find out that she wasn't actually being able to fulfill me because, well, she couldn't. Other people can't do that for you. 
they don't actually have that kind of power. And so I, got, I figured, well, then she must not really be the one. And so I went after somebody else. And then this other person, she would actually be sane and recognize that it's not right to start mooning after some guy, especially, especially some, you know, very handsome, admittedly, teenage boy. But she would, she would not do this. And so I would be all depressed and moany and mopey because she wasn't fulfilling me. But of course, she was never designed to fulfill me. And this entire thing that I had with her was because I wanted her to do something that she couldn't do. I wanted her to be something for me. This kind of love was all about me. That's the kind of love that unfortunately we as a culture have convinced ourselves is real love. And this runs into horrible things in the church. This does horrible things to the way we deal with things. Because how are you to read Amos chapter 4 and imagine that God loves his people, though he does? I mean, he doesn't do things to fulfill the people of Israel immediately. In fact, he openly does things that are opposed to what they think will fulfill them. And that's exactly what the love of God demands that he do because he really is loving. He's not just saying he's loving. No, then we come up with all sorts of new ideas about what we're going to say about God. Uh, tell me if you've heard this phrase before. I heard it a lot. I grew up in a certain kind of church where this was quite common. My God is a God of love, so he would never you fill in the blanks with something that you don't like that the Bible says. I, my God is a God of love, so he'd never get mad at me for cheating on my taxes. My God is a God of love, so he's totally okay with the way that, you know, as I was just saying, I was treating teenage girls in my teenage years. He'd be totally okay with that because my God is a God of love. My God is a God of love. So he's totally okay with the fact that I don't read his word and I don't spend time with his people because my God is a God of love. That's not a God of love. That's actually a God of, that would be making God imagine that he worships me. And that's not what we see in the word of God. And that's not what we see here because that's not true. That's not the way that God works. That's not the truth. And there's a very simple reason for that. You see, real love. I think uh, my brother, uh, brother David actually preached on this one time. He gave us the definition of love from Thomas Aquinas, which is to desire the good of another. It's actually far deeper than that, too. I mean, that's just kind of the pithy one words, one phrase statement of what love looks like. God's love is a love of fullness, loving us and desiring ultimately our good. Our love for God is designed to be a love to see God magnified and glorified and to enjoy him and worship him. That's what our love for God should be. And God's love for us is going to desire our good, not just our good for a few years or for a day or for uh, a few minutes, but our love eternally. But unfortunately, there's only one person who can fulfill us eternally. 
There is only one person who can actually be the full culmination of all the things we would ever want or desire to be with, and that is God himself. And the number one thing that keeps us from that is our love of other things, our desire to put other things as more valuable than God. And this is what we see in the text here today. You see, the central problem you have with the people of Israel in Amos' time isn't that they were irreligious. They are religious people. It's that their religion is of a false god. And the funny part is, it's a false god that has the same name as as the real god. They actually believe in God, at least some form of the God we believe in. They have some form of the text of Scripture that we have. That's what they believe as God. And yet something is wrong with the God they believe. And you can see this. You agree with me when it begin, the passage begins, now you cows of Bashan, he's not giving them a compliment. That's agreed? He's not saying, you guys are awesome, you cows of Bashan. Nobody says that. Cows of Bashan is an insult. And there's a good reason for it. You can see it there in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. This is where God's speaking through Amos. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Notice they're doing good gospel-y type things. They're doing good religious stuff. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, not what they want, what God told them to do, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. They've been doing a whole bunch of kind of good stuff, They've been giving sacrifices to the God of Israel, but kind of the wrong ones. Notice it says that they were leavened gifts instead of the unleavened ones that God had called for. Notice that they, desi- that they, bring, they love to b- publish their free will offerings. That means tell other people about the free will offerings. They love to appear religious. And in their appearance of religion, they actually started to deny God. In fact, you want to go further? Bethel, Bethel, actually means house of God. The, God is saying, literally, you go to the house of God and you're doing all sorts of things to deny God. To create a new God that you will worship instead of the real God. It'll be just changed enough so that you like this God. And Bethel isn't, by the way, a bad place. Originally, it wasn't a bad place to have a place, somewhere to go. This was one of the places that David had brought the ark for a while. This is a place that was actually a house of God at one point. In fact, the reason that it was now a place of religion, though, was because, well, the northern king, a guy named Rehoboam, decided, or sorry, Jeroboam, I think it's Uh, and decided that he didn't want his people returning to the south, to the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so he created uh, false God places in, well, for one of them, Bethel. 
He put a golden calf there and pretended that this is the God of Israel. He then started to use the same kinds of ideas about the God, the true God of Israel, but changed it just enough so that he could control it as part of his state religion. So that nobody would ever start, you know, believing in the true God and returning to the real God and following as part of brothers and sisters as, so that the whole, whole of Israel could be reunited again. That's the situation we have here. And now it's several hundred years it, the, it, later. It's, a, it's still a place of misguided worship to God, but what is worse, this, re, this religion has now become a method by which the people of Israel validate their own evil. They've co it's come, become a place where their desire to subjugate their neighbors, to oppress the poor, has actually become part of their religion. They use the religious language, they use the benefits of the temple and the, or of, the, of Bethel and of the cult that they've created in order to tell themselves that they're good, acceptable people, even though they're doing evil and openly doing evil. That's, that, that, that's why it, it says in 4.1, hear this, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy. And be clear here that I don't think that this is necessarily them being, you know, terrible people who twist their mustaches, if, if cows of Bashan have mustaches, but instead people who honestly do not care about justice. They don't care about doing the right thing. And that's why they say things like, bring that we may drink to their husbands. They just want to they just want to have fun. They want to party, and they don't want to deal with the truth. In 5.7, it, it says it again. To you, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. These are people who have all of the semblances of religion and yet use it to validate all kinds of evil. Totally unlike us, right? We would never do such a thing as this, would we? It gets worse, though. This is a people who avoids dealing with actual rebuke. You can see it in verse, chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact taxes of grain for him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards and you shall not drink their wine. Notice... They have people in their gates who are telling them the truth. There are people still among them who want to say the truth about justice and about following God, and yet they silence them. They avoid them. They hate the people who speak the truth. It gets so bad that by uh, chapter 5, verse 13, Amos is pointing out that therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time. It's got to the point where the people who know the truth, who love the truth, and who can say the truth, stay silent because, well, they don't want to get beaten up. They don't want to get silenced. They don't want to get in trouble for saying what is true. But of course, this is not something that churches would have to deal with, is it? 
we would never be in a situation where we have good Sunday services, we get together every week, and we have Bible studies, and we have all sorts of life groups. And yet when it comes right down to how we treat other people, we, wouldn't, we would look just like everybody else. Brothers and sisters, this is a warning for us. It's a fairly clear warning. Today, I, I, I am happy that you are here. I am overjoyed that I get to see you, my brothers and sisters, today. But let's be careful. Being here this morning doesn't necessarily mean that you are loving God. The only way to tell that you are loving God is if you love God. And you, one of the ways you'll see that, as James will point out much later, is that you'll actually start to do the things that God loves. You'll start to actually love justice. You'll love mercy. You'll walk humbly with your God. Turn the mic up, by the way. If we truly love God, we will be changed by him. So brothers and sisters, today, we'll, let's be careful, uh, first and foremost, that we don't end up like the people of Israel, saying all the right things, but actually doing none of them. If we want to be acceptable to God, we need to have the faith that God calls on us to have. But that's only the first part. Because this, this sermon, though strangely enough, it doesn't sound like it, is going to be about love. Really. Because God doesn't leave his people in this situation. He doesn't leave them in this kind of a problem. He rebukes them. Now, I, I have to admit, we have to keep in mind the thing I started with. That what we think of as love and what God is doing as love may look slightly different in practice. And there's a simple reason for that. Again, like I said, God is not a teenage boy needing other people to validate him. I apologize to any teenage boys. I'm talking about myself, not you guys. Sorry. God is the God of the universe. He'll say this repeatedly throughout the text. He is the God who created the Pelides and he breaks darkness from light. He rules the universe with the word of his power. He doesn't need anything. So his love is not about us fulfilling God's needs. God's love is about him being allowed to fulfill ours. You see, God desires to bring his goodness to his people, to overflow with goodness upon those around him. He desires us, again, as I said, to have joy and to have it eternally. And he's going to be ruthless in making sure we get there. He will not countenance false gods in our lives. And praise God that he won't, but it doesn't look fun. You see, a large segment of the text we're looking at here takes lots and lots of what we would call punishment to the people. Things God has done to the people. He says it over and over again. These are things he has done. He's withheld food and rain, blight and mildew. Pest, he's given them pestilence and war. 
These are bad things. And yet, there's a reason he's doing it. Because the number one thing we do when we're good and solidly religious is that we will take anything that's good happening in our lives as total acceptance that everything is okay with God. And so God, in his infinite mercy to the people of Israel, keeps repeating to them, guys, everything's not fine. It's not okay. And yet they'd never return to him. That, yet that was the point. That's why the refrain there in 4.6, 4.8, 4.9, 4.10, and 4.11 is, yet you did not return to me. It's because God has designed these things to let them know, guys, you're going the wrong way. I got to stop you. And yet they haven't stopped. And they had good reason to understand that this should have been the way that this would function. God had told them beforehand in Leviticus chapter 26. He told them, if you follow me, things are going to go well for the people of Israel. If you don't follow me, I'm going to do specifically these things to you as a people. So God has told them in his word, in black and white, if you do these things, you might be in trouble. If you see these things happening to you, it might be because you're disobedient to me. And yet the people of Israel miss it. They totally miss it. Unfortunately, that may happen to us too. How often have our churches been, well, largely empty? How often have we failed to bring people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And some of that is that we have a bad culture around us totally. But I, I worry that some of it's because we don't actually preach the word of God. It's hard for people to come to saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ if we never tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. The real one, not the one we've created. You know, not the one we create by my God of love would never. We need the real God. And God is clear. He, he brings them to understand this. And again, just in case you're wondering where I'm getting the idea that this God isn't a needy God, it's there in the text. Look at 4.13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind. We're about to hit a, get a storm this afternoon. It's going to be like 80 to 100 kilometers an hour. It's not as bad as the storm we had last week, which had like 120 kilometers an hour, 140 kilometers an hour. The wind is really powerful. Do you know who creates the wind? God. We have nothing we can do to protect ourselves from the wind. We have all of the technology in the world. The storm is still going to hit us, and things are still going to break. Why? Because the wind is more powerful us than us, and who creates the wind? God. Do you know how mountains are created? There are these things called plate tectonics that you know, cause certain parts of the earth to shoot up and go down. Do you know what, what's caused by plate tectonics and you know, while they're making, making mountains? They're called earthquakes. 
Earthquakes wipe out everything that we, as our little arrogant humans, imagine that we can create. God can eliminate them in seconds because he creates mountains. We're not talking about someone who needs us as if he needs anything. In case you're missing the point, 5.8, he who made Pallades and Orion. Do you know who Pallades and Orion are? He's not referring to the fake Greek gods. He's referring to the star systems that are in the sky. Do you know how big stars are? The entirety of everything that we have ever known or done as humans, all of our history, orbits one really, really small star. And he makes systems of them. He doesn't need us. He wants us. You see, this is the important point here. The kind of love that God is calling us to and God is giving to us is not the kind of love that comes from someone who is so needy that he wants us to follow him. No, it's the kind of love that comes from a God that desires for us to have joy and have it eternally. The kind of joy that only he can give. And he's kind of stuck. Why is God so selfish? Why does he make us turn to him and worship him? Because he's the only one who can actually fulfill us by that. If God points you to worship your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife, God hates you because he's pointing you to something that could never, ever fulfill you. But the God of the universe does love us, so he points us to himself because he's kind of stuck. That's the only person he can point to. You see... The ground of our personal active righteousness, the ground of everything it is for us to be believers is not found in following the rules. It's not found in figuring out what kinds of religious uh, iconography we can have. It, it's not in the fact that we have a nice building. And praise God we have a building. This building might be a little too small. We've got too many people now. But if the, the building is not the point. The point is God. The point is pointing to God, the God who loves us and who, as we love him, will find fulfillment. And this is what we see in Amos. How are we to be righteous? How are the people of Israel to turn from this kind of weird idolatry they have? How are we to turn from our idolatries? It'd be easy if, and a lot of religions in the world are going to tell you that this would be the way to do it. You know, just follow these, these simple rules and you'll be turning to God. Make sure that you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't do drugs, and you don't, uh, you don't hang out with people who do that. that. That would be helpful and that would help you get okay with God. And yet that's not what God says here. God says something radically different. In some ways harder, but in some ways so much more glorious, so much more freeing, because do you know how you, you get righteous? Well, Amos 5, 14 and 15. 
Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that God, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remainder of Joseph. Now, again, we can paper over that because we often read the Bible through our modern lenses, the lenses that want us to come up with rules and regulations and all sorts of little things that we can nuance and change so that we don't have to actually deal with the real God. I just want you to focus on a couple of words here. Notice the word seek. It doesn't say do good, or it doesn't say merely do good. It says seek good and not evil. Do you know when, when you seek things? You seek things when you want them when you desire them, when they're the thing that you would most like to have, you seek them. It's paralleled a little bit later, and I mean, just to let you know, if you're interested in genre, shameless plug for Bible studies that are coming up, uh, we will be dealing with genre and going through the text of scripture to try and get more in here, because let's face it, I'm only giving you 35 minutes of what, what I'm seeing in Amos, and there's a lot more here. So you can do Bible studies on Sunday nights starting next week, and we'll go through the same text that we read in the mornings. But in four, verse 14 and 15, he says, Seek good and not evil, and you may live. Hate evil and love good. Again, notice the, notice the wording here. It's not make sure that you have the rules to follow the good. It's not make sure that you do all the right stuff. Seek good. Love good. You see... This side of eternity, our act of righteousness, is not based on rule-keeping perfection, but in God-honoring affection. Now, I worked on that a little bit to try and make sure that that was a good, pithy statement so that we can remember it. I'm going to repeat it. Our act of righteousness, this side of eternity, is not based in rule-keeping perfection, but in God-honoring affection. And there's a very simple reason for that. We are sinners. We have uh, what's called the noetic effects of sin in our hearts and in our minds. We will twist things to make them fit our desires. We'll do it with almost everything. One of the reasons that people will actually tell me, and okay, we, we are part of a religion where our God literally in black and white revealed himself in words that you and I can open and see what they are. And yet, we'll say you can't possibly trust that, even though he put it in black and white words. No, we'll say that we can trust our own feelings or our own experiences or the things that we deal with in life more than the God who actually revealed himself that way. He's revealed himself that way, and yet we will turn all of these things to try and come up with ways to make ourselves feel more righteous than other people or make some people feel accepted and other people unaccepted and all sorts of ways to make me look more holy. Even, you know, I'm handsome, so I also want you to think that I'm holy. But in the end, God desires that we love him. That's where goodness comes from, by the way. You become good by loving good. And do you know who goodness is? God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father's lights. Every 
good and perfect gift. That means that the very fount of goodness itself is God. So brothers and sisters, there is a very simple, a very simple thing that we need to remember here. This is what God is calling us to. He calls us to seek good, hate evil, to love good. This is not a matter merely of doing the right thing, but of loving the right thing, namely God. And this is the proper response to people who would argue, but we do love God. And there are so many people who say that we do love God. I do love God. I come to church every, more, every week, weekend. I make sure that, the, that everything is working well in the church. But do you love goodness? Do you seek his righteousness? Do you desire to be more like him? Do you desire to have other people see through your life the goodness and the mercy and the graciousness of our great God? That's what it is to love God. That's, by the way, why the text here doesn't go so whole hog on love God. It says instead love goodness. Because we can convince ourselves that we love God while we don't do goodness. We, and, and that's insane. Like, seriously, how can you claim that you love the God who is the fount of all goodness and, and then not love goodness? How can you say that you love the God of all righteousness and not love righteousness? And Amos is brilliant in this way. That's, that's why he points it out this way. Do you love goodness? Do you seek his righteousness? If you love God, you love the facets of who God is and who he reveals himself to be. And this should both sober us and release us. Because it's easy to convince ourselves that we are righteous enough or good enough. It's easy enough to convince ourselves that we are not righteous enough or good enough. But do you love righteousness? Do you love goodness? Do you desire to see your own heart changed into such a man or woman that you were a good person? Do you ultimately say that one of the dreams that you have for your life this life that you have, this short life, this 70 to 90 years we're probably going to have here. Do you desire to be a good man and a good woman by the end of this? Do you desire to, to show God's goodness through yourself in the midst of this? Or are you simply okay with being good enough? Brothers and sisters, the way to follow God, the way to be righteous, to be acceptable to God, is not following the rules. I say that qualifiedly because I, I, I don't mean that you simply disobey all the rules. I'm saying that the rules are not the point. The point is God, whom we're called to love. And the really good news about that, he's made a way for us to love him. We don't need to be separated from him at all. While we were sinners, Christ Jesus came to die for us. He opened the way. Jesus knows 
our sin and yet loves us completely. Yes, I am a, I am a jacked up guy who once upon a time played with the hearts of girls. Not a good thing. And yet God loves me anyway. Yes, whatever sin you right now are thinking about that, you know, God couldn't possibly love me in the midst of this. Yeah, I, I don't know your sin. I don't know how horrible it is. But God does and he loves you. He said it. It's in black and white in case you're interested. Open your Bible someday. And more than that, it's not because he needs us. It's not because he, he is some needy, needy individual who just really, really desires to have people love him. No, he really is glorious enough to fulfill the universe. He really does have community already within the Trinity. He doesn't need us. He wants us. He wants to show his goodness to us. He wants to work through us. But brothers and sisters, are we going to love him for it? Because that is the way to goodness. He really is good. He really is glorious. He really does love his people and he loves them well. And as we love him, we will be fulfilled. Friends, today, let's just leave the gods of our own imaginations, even the ones that we call Jesus, and seek after the God of goodness, of righteousness, and of holiness that we meet in the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is amazing. You do amazing things through it. I praise you that you've worked so many good things into texts that honestly, before I read them, I thought that they were a lot less loving than they are. So Lord God, I pray that my brothers and sisters will have seen the truth of your gospel this morning. I pray that they would know you more today. And Lord God, I pray that all of us, from the youngest to the oldest, everywhere and in between, that we would love you, that we would love God's goodness, we would love righteousness, ultimately loving you. Just pray in Jesus' name.